Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week I want to talk a little bit about the writer's process and specifically two aspects of it. Number one, exposition, that awful, boring backstory that you have to cleverly weave into your play or your screenplay or your novel. We'll talk about that. And first, I want to talk a little bit about structure and white male privilege. (laughs) How does that fit in? You will see this week on Hollywood and Levine. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about dramatic structure and the theater and also go on a little bit of a rant. Now, there is a magazine that the Dramatist Guild puts out called The Dramatist, and it comes out every few months, and it's generally very informative and uh, has a lot of good advice for playwrights and writers in general. But every so often... Some of these people come off as so unbelievably pretentious. And I was reading the issue when they were dealing with structure. And there was a roundtable discussion. And let me share with you some of the things that were said. Okay, this guy, uh, J. Julian Christopher, who apparently is some hot, young playwright and he's an assistant professor at some community college true story so great credibility there anyway he's talking about structure and he says this i think about structure when i want to purposefully break it to get across whatever message i need to get through now i really think that the rising action climax all of that that formulaic structure that we're talking about I think Sarah Rule talks about it in her essay book about how it's so steeped in white male privilege and it mirrors the male orgasm. Okay, let's think about that for a moment. White male privilege, as I understand that, it's an advantage that white males have over others in achieving whatever 
goal, whatever job, etc. How does being able to structure a play or a movie become white male privilege? That means it's easier for us to break stories. And when they compare it to the male orgasm, you know, so steeped in white male privilege and it mirrors the male orgasm. So I guess uh, an Asian man doesn't have as good a orgasm. African-American man doesn't have as good an orgasm. White male privilege is why we're able to structure things easier than others, okay? Another playwright here, Eleanor Burgess. She's talking about um, the process of writing and starting her first draft and everything, and she says, uh, uh, then the middle is sort of mush, but then revising, especially in previews, structure becomes about don't be boring or and this is my favorite line, don't be boring unless you want to be boring. Why would you ever want to be boring? Here's the thing. Writers, playwrights, screenwriters, novelists, whatever. Here's the key point I want you to know. You are not writing for you. You are writing for the audience. That is the key. The audience is not somebody that just happens to sit there and observe you going through your brilliance. You are there to serve the audience. Okay? The audience has one question, and that question is this. What happens next? You got to tell a story. You got to tell them that. Now, you could say, well, you know, I I want the audience to be disgusted. I I want the audience to hate this play. Okay, you do? Fine. Give them their money back then. Okay, because if you're going to take their money... If you're going to expect them to give up a night to go to a movie theater or to give up a few days to sit on a chair and read your book and you don't give a shit if they hate it, then the least you can do is refund their money. See, I told you this was a rant. This uh, J. Julian Christopher, assistant professor at a community college, uh, goes on to say, I think the reason that playwrights have a problem with discussing structure is that many times structure has nothing to do with the playwright. It has to do with how the audience is preceding it. How are you building the house to make it livable for the audience? Okay, and here's where he goes off the rails. He goes, and I don't know if I necessarily care about that as long as they understand the content or the feeling that I'm going for the structure can be anything sure teach that in your uh, your class in community college again another point writers 
are storytellers. Let me just repeat that. They're storytellers. And here's the thing. Human beings, since the beginning of time, like to be told stories. I mean, there is a physiological component to this, that when people are listening to and enjoying stories, it releases endorphins in the brain. I mean, there are chemical reasons why people like hearing stories. And that is your job as a writer to be a storyteller. People also like resolutions in stories. Now, there is the basic structure, the beginning, middle, and an end. And yes, you could say it's formulaic, but it also works. And how you tell the story is up to you. In terms of what form you tell that story, or you can invent a form to tell that story, but as long as you are engaging the audience with that story, as long as they are not bored, as long as you have something to say, as long as you come to some sort of conclusion, whatever that might be, I mean, subject matter, that's up to you. How you tell it, that's up to you. What the resolution is, that's up to you. It's not that you're in kind of a Robert McKee type of mode where there are specific beats that have to come at a specific point in the screenplay and every screenplay comes out looking exactly the same thing. No, you don't have to do that, but you do, number one, have to recognize that your job is to be a storyteller first and your other job is to entertain or engage an audience. Okay, now the audience may walk away in tears. The audience may be very moved by what you had to say. The audience may be somewhat disturbed, but yet it brings up a a lot of topics and it's very thought-provoking and it's something that you think about over the next few days. You really ruminate over the subject matter. All of that is great, but it also means that you have done your job in that you have engaged the audience. Okay, so I'm not going to belabor that except to say... Jesus Christ, the theater world can be pretentious. I mean, in television, we have assholes. We have many, many assholes, but we're not really that pretentious. One of the hardest things that a writer has to deal with is exposition. All of that backstory... You need to know who all of these people are and what the situation is and what they do in their job and how they know each other and who's married to who and how long have they been married and what is the problem of their marriage and all of the things that you need to know generally going into a story. And it's very difficult to do because it's very dry material And the other problem is actors hate exposition. 
actors just hate having to do it because for the most part, there's nothing for them to do other than just relay information. There's no emotion to it. There's no attitude. Nothing is really charged. They are just spilling out information. So you as a writer have a very tricky, difficult challenge, and that is to get in the exposition you need to get in, but to do it in such a way where it is still interesting for the audience. I was talking to an artistic director of a pretty major theater in the Los Angeles area, and he would get inundated with plays. And I asked him about it, and I said, how do you judge these things? And he says, you know, I can usually tell in the first 10 pages whether or not a play is any good. And I said, how? And he said, by the exposition, by how artful they worked in the exposition. And it's one of the reasons why a TV pilot is one of the hardest writing assignments you will ever have. Think about it. When you begin a pilot, in the very first scene, you have to, A, establish the premise of the show, B, establish all of the characters, C, all of the relationships between them, D, start a story, And if it's a comedy, you also have to make it funny. And all of this stuff has to happen seamlessly right off the bat. It's especially difficult in comedy because, you know, an audience is not going to laugh if they're confused. And if an audience is sitting there watching your show and they're going, oh, wait, okay, who is he again? And... Is is she a sister or is that is she the wife? Um, and and do they know each other? What what's going on here? What are they doing in this office? What do they make? What's their job? Who's the boss? Who's not the boss? What's the hierarchy? How long have they been there? When the audience is just trying to figure out the answers to all of these questions. They're not really going to be laughing. It's a whole lot easier to start laughing at something if you know who the characters are. Then there is the issue of, well, how much exposition do you need? How much does the audience need to know before you get your story going? Because another way of losing an audience is to just have a data dump is to just have somebody spill out everything. So here we are, and we're working in the uh, such-and-such weasel factory, and this is what we make, and this is my boss, and uh, this is my wife, and my wife comes down every Thursday, and she makes me sandwiches, and you're going, what? I don't remember any of that stuff, okay? So you have to kind of dole it out very artfully, and it also helps kind of builds the suspense a little bit and the intrigue. If you tell the audience exactly what you want them to know at this point in the story, but you withhold some things so that they're still kind of left wondering, okay? It's not a good idea for them to be wondering, well, 
Are these two a couple? Are they married? Is it brother and sister? Do they like each other? Are they coworkers? Uh, who are they having this conversation at a restaurant? They could be anybody. Okay, you, you need to know who they are. But if the guy has a box at the table, you're looking at that box, you don't necessarily as the writer have to tell them what's in that box yet, keep them guessing, keep them wondering, hmm, what is in that box? Why does he carry that box with him wherever he goes? Eventually, you do have to explain what is in that box. And it seems like the longer you wait, the bigger the payoff has to be. But still, you don't have to let the audience in on everything right away. Okay, so what are some devices that allow you to dispense exposition? The laziest, and I see this time and time again, is just the narrator. Just have a guy come on at the beginning and go, this is a story about Vicky uh, Barcelona and She came to Barcelona after graduating college and she dumped her boyfriend and she doesn't know if she's looking for love anymore. So she's coming to stay with her friend in Barcelona and hopes to get a job in an art gallery. Ugh. Woody Allen did that. He's done that a few times in movies. (laughs) It's not the worst thing he's done, certainly, but still. Um To me, narration is really a very lazy way of getting out exposition. The other thing you have to keep in mind is characters telling other characters things they already know. I see this all the time when I used to watch CSI. And they would be talking to each other and they would go, now, these tire tracks, uh, as you could see, the, the indentation requires a such and such, and if a tire track goes over 60 miles an hour, and blah, 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 you know, and you figure that the guy that's telling that to the other inspector, that the inspector would go, I, I've been doing this for 25 years, I know that. You don't have to tell me the tire track thing. I built the fucking tire track machine. So that is a problem where you have, say, characters who know each other really well. They're not going to just say things to each other that the other person would know. Remember watching in the Steven Spielberg movie, The Post, and there's a scene where Meryl Streep's daughter... I think it was Allison Brie, uh, has a scene with her. And the daughter is like, Mom, remember the time that we were in a motorcade and you said that you really loved me, but that you didn't want me to have such and such for my birthday? And, and I said to you, yes, I know, but Mom, you're so controlling. And there was that time when you and Dad did it. And you're going, wait a minute. <laughs> Why are these people saying this to each other? This is just bullshit. There's an expression, you can see the hand of the writer. 
And in cases like that, you certainly can. So what are some good devices, some good ways of getting out exposition? Well, one is to introduce a character into the world. So if you have, for the first scene in your pilot, let's say your pilot is about a fire station, so you have a new guy coming into the fire station, and he's introduced to everybody, and he's told what the job responsibilities will be, and he's told what kind of neighborhood this is and how many fires they get a week and what they need on the fire truck and what his role will be. You know, when they're describing this to this rookie fireman, they're also describing it to the audience. So that's why you see many, many times on TV pilots, it will begin with the first episode. It will begin with somebody entering the workplace for the first time or a meet-cute, if it's a romantic comedy, between two people so that they can introduce each other and they can introduce themselves to us, the audience. There was a time, these are called premise pilots, and there was a time when networks were against premise pilots because they felt that the premise pilots skewed the uh, research, which they do. If you're going to have an episode, say, of Bewitched, what is going to be more compelling in the life of the series than Darren goes out with this girl and really likes her and this is the girl of his dreams and he finds out she's a witch. Okay, that's a big old story turn and it's certainly very intriguing and you can understand why that would test much higher than just episode four that starts out where Endora turns Darren into a toad. But it's so much harder to come in on horseback, as they say, in the middle of a series when, again, you have to explain what this is and who these people are, and it's just that much tougher. Harder to write. Pilots are hard to write anyway. And those became so unwieldy, and there were so many exposition problems that those shows tested below what they should have. And eventually the network said, okay, screw this. Let's just go back to premise pilots. If you remember the Cheers pilot, Diane Chambers comes into the bar for the very first time and is introduced to everybody and the show is off and running. What I like to do for comedy pilots is hide exposition in a joke. If you can write a funny line which moves the scene along and along the way drops in a little nugget of exposition, that's great. So it doesn't look like we're just hanging a lantern on it saying, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll have the veal piccata and boy, this reminds me of when I was a senior at Northwestern and uh, uh, almost fell into Lake Michigan. <laughs> no, 
<laughs> you don't have to work it in that way. Find an artful joke to get in your information. There was a good article in the Dramatist magazine. Like I said, when the writers aren't being incredibly pretentious, they do share some interesting thoughts. And one is an article about exposition by a very good writer named Jeffrey Sweet. And he has a couple of tips that I think are both very good. Number one is, and this is especially true between characters who do know each other, get them involved in some kind of a negotiation. Because if they're negotiating over something, then they are more apt to bring up something the other person knows, but they're bringing it up for a reason. They're bringing it up for a point. You always want to go to the beach. Well, this year I want to go somewhere else. Well, you never want to go anywhere. This year I want you to go someplace. So if you do that, then you can work in the exposition. Another good suggestion that Jeffrey has is discuss plans for the future. Again, if these characters are, say, planning a trip, what they're going to do for the summer vacation, and they say, well, we could do this, or, um, well, we could go to your mother's. You know, your mother is sick, and we haven't visited your mother, so I guess we could do that. There are ways, if you talk about the future, that you can slip in elements of the past. I find, and I've talked about this before, that dumb characters can be very helpful because when you are explaining to Woody on Cheers or the coach on Cheers uh, the situation where Sam is going to ask Diane's friend, but Sam thinks that her friend is really interested in her and so he's looking to get a threesome. I'm just talking off the top of my head. But the point is, when he's revealing the plan to Woody so that Woody will understand, he's also revealing the plan to you, the audience member. And finally, I found that if you give the person delivering the exposition a clear attitude, that will take the curse off of it. Now, we were doing that show almost perfect and we had a character who was like the secretary. And another expression for exposition is pipe, laying pipe. And so we had the secretary come in, and basically her job was to say, oh, there's trouble on the set. Uh, oh, one of your actors just called in uh, sick, and you got to deal with that problem. And the name we gave her was Piper. And after about five or six episodes, she quit. She said, this is just, there's nothing for me to do. I'm just so bored. Uh, all I'm doing is delivering an exposition. And we really couldn't blame her, but we still needed that device. We still needed someone to come in from time to time and deliver news. So what we arrived at was a character who took great delight in handing out bad news. And so she would come in and she would be just so thrilled to be able to say that one of the actors just went into cardiac arrest. And because she had that attitude, we were able to get some laughs out of it. 
And those are a couple of tips. I must say that when I get a note from a network or studio or from anybody that says, I'm confused, then I haven't done my job. I take those notes very seriously because the audience needs to know certain things at certain points of the story. And if you haven't conveyed them clearly, then you haven't done your job. And it's tough. Exposition is boring. It's hard to do. Like I said, you have to find ways of artfully just camouflaging it. But it's something really necessary. Oh, one other final tip, and you can only do this in certain shows. The first season of Game of Thrones, I thought, handled exposition beautifully. And of course, there was so much exposition because you're creating a whole world and various kingdoms and regimes and dragons and everything else. And what they would do is they would just have characters spilling all of this exposition, but in a brothel. So there were naked people having sex in the background. Now, I don't know what was said in terms of the exposition. You know, none of that registered with me, but boy, I look forward to those scenes every week. And that will do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. It has been my white male privilege to be your moderator. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, Bruce, and Jason Miller. Yes, it takes a village to put on one of these podcasts. I am available if you want to email me, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm on Twitter, who isn't, at Ken Levine, if you want to follow me. I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, uh, subscribe, five-star review, you know the drill. I will talk to you again next week. Hollywood and Levine. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.